Welcome to Spine and Body Podcast. This podcast's stated goals are to change how the world treats musculoskeletal pain, to create experts in the treatment of neck, back, and shoulder pain, and to advance the world's understanding of this pain, to inspire researchers, thinkers, and innovators, to empower patients and embolden caretakers. Follow us on this journey and let's learn and grow together. This podcast is brought to you by the Body Guitar Clinic because your body is a finely tuned instrument. Like all finely tuned instruments, it must be properly cared for in order to play the beautiful music it was intended to play. Care for your body and use it correctly and it will play music that is unique to you. Your life song. This is Sean Wheeler, MD, and let's get your body in tune. Welcome back. Another episode of Spine and Body Podcast. We're here again uh, today with Dr. Naveed Mahoudi. Um, we had a very popular podcast with him earlier with uh, with trigger point injections, and I, and I uh, told listeners, listeners who've listened for a while will know that I've told people that he's going to be a regular uh, contributor. And after the success of his first podcast, I wanted to get him back on and I wanted to talk about some of the other things that he does, including a uh, low carb, a low carb lifestyle uh, that he has instituted in his practice. And I think it's I think it's valuable for um, all kinds of practitioners and also valuable for patients. So uh, interested and excited to talk, uh, talk to him again. So uh, welcome, Dr. Mahoudi. Thank you, Sean. I really appreciate you having me back on. I believe it's been over a year since we recorded that first episode. Indeed, yeah, that that was. It didn't come out until recently, but yeah, um, a, a year ago. So, what's been going on? The topic we kind of mentioned in the past regarding nutrition and lifestyle, diet, metabolism. These are I think, really important topics that I've developed a great interest in over the last several years. Um, I think it's probably such a big topic. I'll share a little bit about my journey of why I've went as far as creating a whole group model visit, looking at lifestyle factors, in particular, food choices and and related approaches to improving health and and the practice where people are coming to see me for mostly joint aches or injuries, orthopedic problems, sports injuries, and why pivoting a little bit and incorporating some of these other lifestyle factors is so important. Um, so as I mentioned previously, I'm a traditionally trained family physician at medical school with a master's in public health at University of Connecticut. I uh, did my family medicine residency and then a one-year sports medicine fellowship. And going into medicine before I even went into medical school, I always had an idea of being the Jack of all trades, master of none, the family doctor who could care for a lot of different things and was comfortable without knowing everything about everything and knowing when to refer patients. I was very comfortable with that type of a philosophy of approaching care. And a big part of medicine, in my mind, was prevention. It just made so much more sense to me to prevent an illness or to help get people reverse an old, a potential chronic illness if it were possible than strictly focusing on treatment through medication. So I valued healthy choices, keeping active myself, playing sports, 
trying to eat, eat well as I understood it at the time. But those were just my values and things that I thought were uh, helpful. Um, and then entering medical school, as we know, there's it's a, it's a tremendous amount of information to learn. And the real focus is on understanding disease and disease process. And not as much on root cause, which for the majority, arguably almost all of current modern day diseases is lifestyle factors and food inactivity to a degree, uh, inadequate sleep, stress, substances, these types of things that are ideally reversible or preventable by avoiding certain behaviors and, and doing better with others. Uh, making better choices, particularly with food and with uh, activity, exercise. And then I did my sports medicine fellowship after my I did a my medical school, did the family medicine residency, where I really learned how to care for many patients with medication. That was that was the the focus of what we were trained. You make a diagnosis, you and then you you have to understand which medication or a combination of medications can best prevent progression of that condition or potentially keep it under control um, or even in some cases to uh, eradicate it for cancer, for example. There are treatments now, not that I went into oncology, of course, but giving the, the scope of what the medications can do. And then I did my sports medicine fellowship and found uh, working predominantly with a healthier population who were very active and there were some benefits to doing that and understanding their those uh, those athletes or the mentality of, of people getting that broad spectrum, that broad scope of the general practice versus the high-level athlete at University of Connecticut, I think taking care of the athletes there. And then I, when I left uh, my fellowship, when I graduated and was looking for a job, I wanted to do a mixed model. I, I really valued and, and loved family medicine, loved caring for patients, not just their you know, body parts. I said there's anything wrong with that because that's much of what I do now. But looking at the whole person and still that idea of I was comfortable not being a an expert in any one thing, so to speak. Although with the sports fellowship, looking at musculoskeletal problems from a non-surgical standpoint could be considered you know, relative expert in that domain. And as I was doing my, as I was caring for patients, half of my practice was full spectrum family medicine from adolescence to geriatric age and doing a half sports medicine model, getting consultation requests from colleagues. It was quite a challenge keeping up and doing everything standard of care in both fields. And there was a real great degree of growth and, and at the same time frustration because you really have to learn a lot and keep up with a lot of different things and understand how how to fit, and I was kind of an outlier, so to speak. My, I was the only one doing the, the model that I did and, and figuring that out, not really having many people or anybody in the community to turn to who was doing the same thing, posed some challenge. So I really had to figure things out on my own and keep up and make sure I was practicing to the standards in both fields, in, the, in, in sports medicine practice and in the uh, family medicine practice. And after a few years of doing that, I, I began to get a little frustrated with um, the inability to really look at the individual and care for them in ways that I thought that they needed, that the system didn't, time constraints, 
and uh, certain guidelines are out there. Maybe I didn't fully agree with what was what was being said or what was recommended. It became difficult to practice in the way I felt I needed to practice under some of those constraints. Now, at the same time, those quote-unquote constraints helped me because it, it taught me systems and approaches. So there was it was the yin and yang of that. But over time, uh, my practice just tended to evolve and. My training isn't to, isn't so much to care for the very sick and complicated patients, and that's what sometimes a primary care or internal medicine type practice uh, is, is mostly about. And over time, I, I decided to transition. So I started to um, some of my primary care patients, I would shift to other other doctors in our practice, and I would do more of a load of of uh, sports sports medicine. Now along the way. Some of my frustration was in the difficulty in, in helping people make lifestyle changes. People would come in with their various multitude of modern-day metabolic diseases, diabetes, fatty liver disease, high blood pressure, dyslipidemia, the list goes on, all these different kinds of conditions, and giving them the standard advice that we were all taught was just not moving the needle at all and not having the time. I, I felt if I just had some more time, it could teach folks uh, with them, to spend some more time with them and teach them some of these principles, maybe it would make some difference. So that was kind of another root core challenge I had of not having enough time. Every doctor will tell you they don't have time. And this is where the the group visit model was was born, was in teaching in groups and having group individual visits within a group and people learn from the interactions. If I'm talking to patient A, and there's, you know, B, C, D, E, F patients in the room, the others learn from my interaction with A as they observe it. Um, so there was a doc in our group who was doing that, who was a neurosurgeon, and quite an affable uh, guy, great personality, and people loved him, and he would come, and he would do group visit neuro, neurosurgery consultations. And uh, he would talk about surgery with them, and I sat in on a few of his, group sessions and he was great. They loved him. He was funny. And it just seemed like, wow, this is a really neat model on how to, how to do this. And it was somewhat in place already. So that was in the back of my mind of how can I, how can I do this in my practice? And I did one on, on arthritis. And then I did another one on, 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 on trigger points, my partial pain. Um, and there, for various reasons, those didn't, uh, work out. I think if we had pushed at it more, we could have gotten a better model with it. But given the breadth of the practice I was doing, it was, difficult to institute that. And always in the back of my mind was this notion that most of us think about is is dietary advice. You know, how do we how do we counsel patients who have a number of metabolic illnesses, diabetes? What advice do we give them? And many times in the larger institutions, if you have dietitians and nutritionists, oftentimes, you know, getting them getting those patients to the nutritionist, you've done your job. We don't really have the time to spend to discuss nutrition and eat, and, and many of us don't really know. Most physicians, the training in it is very, very poor. And my training initially was quite poor and really understanding metabolism and the physiology of the food we eat and how it affects weight gain, how it affects our hormones. Just a real basic understanding that just inadequate, I would say. And I would give these standard advice of, Eat less, move more. The Tyco model: calories in versus Tyco uh, calories out. Energy balance theory on on weight gain. 
talked about avoiding fried and fatty foods. Tell people to eat more fish, limit red meat, eat more vegetables, eat whole grains. You know, these drink skim low fat milk, like all low fat dairy. All these ideas that just we, we would just give to people without knowing where they came from and why we recommend those. So I began a journey in, in studying and looking into this uh, through, through listening to a podcast once on from from our BJSM, the BJSM podcast, listening to Tim Noakes around 2014 or 15, where he was interviewed by Peter Bruckner. Again, Peter Bruckner comes up. He's the one I mentioned in the prior podcast on um, dry needling that he was doing. Uh, but these two are having a discussion, and some of the things Noakes and anybody who knows sports medicine knows Tim Noakes, his background, how much he's written about sports medicine, and his marathoner, ultramarathoner, that was the editor of the the textbook Lore of Running, a multi-authored book from started in the eighties, and he literally wrote the chapters in that book on carb loading carbohydrate loading. And I heard him recanting his whole theory on this, saying this is not evidence-based, and I was wrong. And uh, he had switched transition to a low-carb diet. And he was doing keto kind of low-carb. And he was talking about this, and I'm listening, and Bruckner was listening, and or interviewing him. And I, I just said, okay, wh- what is this? So I started exploring this, this area of, of low-carb and over a couple of years, um, finally decided to do it. And uh, I recall for several years with my wife um, telling her, honey, I just want to lose. And I weighed, maybe this is a little personal side here, I weighed in the 192, 194 range for much of my adult life, as I can recall. And I wanted to get to 185 for, for no other reason than I just thought that was a better number. Um, and to lose a little you know, belly fat, of course. So I was exercising regularly. I was eating as well as I could, but I just could not drop seven pounds and keep it off. I dropped three or four, get down to 188. Say, hey, look, I'm 188. I get back on the scale a week later, and it was you know, 192 again. And I just couldn't couldn't figure it out. So I listened to this podcast and explore it for a couple of years and, and listen to some more and really get compelled by this low-power approach. And finally, said, okay, I'm really going to do this. I'm going to limit, uh, eliminate refined carbs and added sugar and see what happens. And I lost like 20 pounds in about six weeks. It was just unlike anything. I couldn't believe it. That's a completely anecdotal story. And if you listen to people who kind of talk about this, who who have gone low carb or if they teach others about it, or they've all had a similar experience, whether it be personally or seeing a patient who they thought there was no hope for because they were, had a metabolic derangement, they were 100, 200 pounds overweight, and then they see me a year later and they've lost 200 pounds and they can't believe it and say, what did you do? Almost all of them say, many of them would say, I went keto or I went low carb. And if you listen to the speakers out there who kind of talk about these topics, that's, that's it's one of those two. It's either personal or hearing somebody else or the combination of the two. So that was my anecdotal experience. When it comes to diet, I mean, very, very few of us are taught very much about it, and, and especially in medical school or, or in our training. And it really is, I mean, it's it's almost like if there's practitioners out there that haven't, they should try one of these diets, whatever it is, they should try a diet. Uh, and what will happen is they'll think that that diet is the greatest ever. 
and then they should try a different one and try a different one. And, and it's kind of like that Dunning Kruger that we talked about before you do one yeah. diet and you think it's the greatest ever, but it's not till you start messing around and start and start figuring other things out where you start going, okay, there's so much more to nutrition than we ever thought. And it's so much more, it's so much more than, I mean, you know, you brought up the weight loss thing. That's how everybody gets into it. But you, you try to lose weight, but then you start finding more and more benefits from, from what you do or don't put into your mouth as far as, as far as food and, and drink goes. Absolutely. Tracking it is the talent. Keeping, keeping track of it and being diligent or disciplined to do whatever it may be at that time. Um, I think the, the notion of the different, trying the different diets is certainly, it, depending on your goals, I know some people who will do this for a living. They'll try everything because that's what they, they teach. You know, they, they're, they want to understand how they work and the best way is to personal experience. So, uh, I don't necessarily take that, that approach. I don't have the time, time to do that. And, and there's certain foods and things that I enjoy and don't want to necessarily have to give them up. So I don't know it's going to necessarily help the goal I'm trying to achieve. So finding out what your goal is and, or laying out what your goal is. If it's strictly weight loss, then there's a variety of ways to approach that. If it's performance improvement or, you know, some combination. But I think there are, certainly there's something we said about trial and error. Uh, and I, and I would say that the, the background information we have, the, the nutritional guidance and studies we have are, they're not high level, high quality studies. They're mostly epidemiologic observational studies that look retrospectively at groups of people and, and what those groups of people ate or what's popularly eaten in those communities and looking at health outcomes. But there's so many other factors. We talk about the healthy user bias where if you're in a community where people are value prevention and and wellness and health, then you're going to move towards that in many other ways that you're going to avoid certain things we talked about uh, earlier, smoking, uh, maybe uh, alcohol use or other kinds of substances or behaviors that could be uh, harmful. You're going to avoid those naturally. You're going to be in an environment where that, and now we're just saying, well, it's just because of the food they're eating, that this is why. The, the, the blue zones would be one example of this, where they have uh, a healthier population, but there's debate as to exactly why that is. And if we just pigeonhole and say, well, it's because they're vegetarian or they, they have this particular dietary approach, that's why we're, we're, we're missing all those other factors. So nutritional science is highly controversial, highly debated. There are many studies on both sides of meta-analyses. For, for example, red meat is often is targeted as, as harmful. And a lot of that is for environmental concerns, uh, some would argue, that, that, or for animal rights. And then that's oftentimes brought into the argument for human health, uh, which we don't have the data to say that eating animal products is harmful um, exclusively. Like there's there's numerous studies on the opposite side of of this discussion, and even meta analyses looking at red meat consumption that there's no significant increase in this. And the Annals of Internal Medicine had a meta analysis a couple of years ago that came out with red meat. There's many similar ones, but even on top of that, to your point, you have people who who quote unquote go carnivore, right? They become carnivores and they have all sorts of maybe autoimmune diseases or other health issues and they transition to this all meat diet and their life is transformed. They lose all this weight, their their skin looks better, 
some of their autoimmune conditions even. I've heard cases of like Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis. Some of these will get better. They're not on medications anymore. Their lab numbers look great, and they're they're not eating any vegetables. And that would be horrific for for their doctors to hear. And I have patients of mine who have stumbled on that or do it themselves just through other ways that, that I've encountered, who still, when they go see their doctors, are kind of ridiculed. They're told, you're going to kill yourself. This is not good for you. And they've never felt better when they're doing this. And their numbers look good for the most part. Like, what do you tell that person? How do you, and this is where I think in medicine, we need to pivot and really think about the goals of the individual and not be as dogmatic in, in some of the guidance and recommendations that we give people, just to really look at them as an individual. And uh, and some of the fear we have, I guess, with this would be the, uh, the looking at what our peers believe and what our peers recommend and what their quote-unquote standard advice guidelines are and how sometimes those can be detrimental. You know, one of the quotes I have in my office by, by Mark Twain that is that, you know, when I was in medical school at UConn, I literally lived a quarter mile away from the Mark Twain house. It was a beautiful home where they had his library and visited a few times. But yet, Mark Twain was brilliant with his quotes. And I think that my favorite one that he has is, is says, additional problems are the offspring of poor solutions. So if we look at a problem, we don't understand why it's happened or what the root cause of it is, and we just treat the symptoms. It can lead to disaster. So there's so many other problems on the line that we haven't even thought about or could conceive of. And many think that this is what happened in the mid to late 70s when the USDA developed the dietary guidelines, which emphasized a diet high in uh, carbohydrates and bread, pasta, cereal, rice. If you look at the old food pyramid, the whole bedrock of it was grains. Now, there was a lot of financial uh, interest there. There were subsidies for the corn industry, wheat industry. It was a totally separate kind of topic, but there are factors uh, in this. And there's much, been much written about the history of the food industry and, and marketing that's influenced what we eat and why, why we eat it and how much of it we eat. And the food industry also creates foods that are addictive or very, they're highly palatable. So we want to eat more of them. And then you're telling people not to eat as many calories. You know, cut your calories down, and then you're giving them foods that are effectively addictive in many ways. There's a concept known as the bliss point that food industry is aware of that they'll just the right amount of salt and sugar and fat to make foods irresistible. Uh, so these are working against us as we're trying to counsel our patients and ourselves. It's no secret that many healthcare providers, physicians, sports docs, even, we're not as healthy as we, we could be. We're carrying around some extra weight that um, we probably could do better in shedding. So you, I, I don't mean that as a judgment by any means. Sorry. Go ahead. Sure. So you, so you, uh, you, you lose some weight and then you start counseling patients kind of on the side, probably. That's what most of us do. Most of us will, will try something and we'll say, wow, that really worked for me. And every patient should be on it. Um, so how did that develop from, yeah, from your diet uh, into what you're doing? Great, thank you. Good, good question. So I, I, I had had my little transformation. I talked to some patients that re recommended it, to, and I was still doing uh, primary care at the time. So I started uh, giving, I think, better advice, really directing, helping people who had struggled for years and saw people who were 20, 30, 50 pounds. And over the course of several months, some of, some of the um, security guards in our building actually 
would uh, come to see me for other musculoskeletal problems and talk to them, hey, you know, you could probably help your knee pain if you drop pounds and tell them about my program I was thinking about conceiving, putting together this group visit model. And the first one was with a group of six, seven of the security guards in our building. And it was a, it was a group visit where I would, would build, be built through insurance. We had certain kind of standard intake forms and, uh, and recommendations on types of foods to avoid, foods to eat, uh, really a, a low carb approach, but really more of a, of a, of a, um, real food diet approach. Eating natural foods is really the important point that I would emphasize, and also avoiding refined carbohydrates and sugar, added, anything with added sugar. And you'd see a number of people, all of them would lose considerable weight. And as that, as we, I gained momentum with that, I would refine my, the, 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 the PowerPoint presentation basically with question and answer, handouts, articles, coaching. They'd come back and it was, Stretch that over a couple months. We'd have every week or every other week, every other week initially, and then as as this grew, we did the security guard group, and then in my office, I would have many patients come to see me with knee pain, hip pain, who needed to lose 40, 50, 100 pounds, either just for symptom relief, but also if they needed hip or knee replacement. And I started inviting them. I'd give them a little handout on the approach, the nutritional dietary approach to this. And started to get a lot of people signing up for it. And I started out having one session per week up to two sessions, excuse me, one session every other week to two sessions a week with average of six patients per group. Was this something where you guys were meeting like after, after your clinic or was it like lunch or how did you work out yeah. the dynamics of that? Sure. Yeah. So that's a whole, there was quite a bit of, of maneuvering, pivoting, finding out Surveying patients, finding out what times work best for them. Some would be first in the morning. Other group would be uh, 4.30 or 5. We did do a noontime. We had, at one point, we had three groups going a week uh, where we had a morning, a midday, and an evening. And, you know, there, there was some burden to my staff with that, but they were on board with it. And it was, just getting it started was, was uh, a lot of, it had to be very flexible with the staff, and they were. I had, I had a really great team, a couple of athletic trainers working with me that were great and would be very supportive and just do what needed to get done. So that was that was awesome. And the staff saw the, the potential for this. I had to meet with the medical director and other people in, in this program and ask me questions. What is this? The mosquito came up, and they got nervous, and you know, I sent them like 50 articles describing uh, the data behind it, and they they said, you know, this, yeah, okay, this sounds reasonable. Things they never really thought about or heard before. Because most of us don't really look at this literature, not enough to, I would say. So it became a uh, it grew to two to three visits uh, per week in a group format, and and over time, I'd have to document, and it would to do typically a level two or a level three office visit to this. And a three, level three is like a, a standard visit. And I would do enough intake. We'd look at their medications. We'd look at uh, factors that would qualify. But it became burdensome. It became difficult for me because I wasn't, I wasn't in the, I didn't want to, they weren't my primary care patients, of course. And I didn't want to be adjusting medications. So communicating with their primary doctors was 
and uh, they had, had diabetes with their endocrinologist. So it became a little bit more than I could manage, uh, that I wanted to manage and that I really could manage thoughtfully. Because if you make, if you make, the reason being, if you make significant dietary changes in a person who's on insulin or on a antihypertensive, their blood pressure will drop and their sugar will drop tremendously just by in, in a day or two. And that's dangerous. If somebody's on a, on insulin, 50, 60 units, which is not unusual, and they're eating a typical diet, and then you go say stop eating carbohydrates or lower them, and they're still taking the same insulin, they're gonna they're gonna bottom out, and people hypoglycemic and really get sick, and it can be it can be very dangerous. So kind of tiptoeing through that, it can be a challenge. And just seeing those cases, we tried to make it where patients without diabetes were coming. Handling patients without uh, were not on insulin, but some of them would kind of find their way in. They'd hear about it, and they would come from you know several neighboring towns away. They'd hear about this, and they'd come, and it just became too difficult to manage. So I pivoted. We kind of met with the staff and the administration and pivoted to a more of a self-pay model, and then also brought on a nutritionist, a dietitian, a dietitian who would facilitate. So I would give the theoretical. Um, uh, science behind it, and then the dietitian would be on the ground, so to speak, helping with the day-to-day uh, approach: what to eat, what not, to, you know, what foods to avoid. And the real underlying, undergirding principle here is insulin resistance. That's really the focus of what we're trying to reverse or to prevent: is understanding the hormonal factors in metabolic disease and not just the calorie content. Um, and I give, I give talks about this, looking at people with type 1 diabetes, patients who have had insulinomas and how they've uh, had, for example, a person with type 1 diabetes does not make any insulin. And if your body is not making any insulin, it doesn't matter how many calories you eat, you're not going to gain weight. And you're going to lose weight, you're going to get sicker eventually until the diagnosis is made, and then you're treated with insulin and your body gains weight again. So insulin has a powerful energy storage function. Most would say that insulin, yes, most people, they would say insulin lowers blood sugar. And it does, but it's also, even more importantly, an energy storage hormone. It lowers blood sugar by by pushing it into cells of the body. And in those cells, it is converted into fat in many cases, especially when we have too much of it. So this is where the idea that Noakes came up with, Tim Noakes I mentioned earlier on that podcast, this carbohydrate resistance model, or this carbohydrate intolerance, excuse me, carbohydrate intolerance, insulin resistance idea that there's a subset of the population that have carbohydrate intolerance. And if they consume so many carbohydrates, they're going to develop metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and gain weight. And that's really what we're targeting here is helping People keep their insulin levels as effectively as, as low as possible. You know, we need insulin. It has growth factor, has capabilities to it. It stores energy. There's many benefits to it. But too much of it is, is quite harmful and leads to the body resisting it. And therefore, we need higher amounts of it that our pancreas will secrete, which leads to this cascade of events, inflammation, and all these conditions have been linked. Many conditions have been linked to insulin resistance. If, uh, if, if, you, if you were to look on the on the ICD-10 code, 
the diagnostic code for metabolic syndrome, it's the, it's the exact same as it is for insulin resistance. They're the same thing, but we call it metabolic syndrome. Right. But if you look at all the conditions that are associated with it, um, fatty liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, type 2 diabetes, polycystic ovarian disease, hypertension, dyslipidemia, high triglycerides, low HDL, all these are part of the underlying cause of insulin resistance. Right. And we're seeing this, uh, and this isn't the topic for today, but you know, uh, high insulin is associated with increased inflammation. Uh, stress leads to increased uh, insulin. I mean, there's an extraordinary number of. Th- I mean, that uh, people have have tied uh, inflammation and increased insulin to Alzheimer's. They've uh, autoimmune diseases, an extraordinary number of things in your body that are that are harmful have been slowly getting tied to inflammation and uh, and insulin. Uh, so or high insulin. So the topic of of uh, diet has become increasingly on the minds of more and more physicians from more and more different specialties. You're speaking to the choir because I think that an awful lot of physicians are going. You know, I I've been hearing more and more about either I'm already involved with nutrition or I'm getting more and more involved with it, and and almost everything has to do with insulin and inflammation. Agreed. Yeah. No question. I, I think there's been a big push in, in understanding this topic better. Weight comes up a lot, and I just wanted to touch base on that prior comment I was making because struggle, struggles with weight are incredibly difficult, and it's multifactorial. And we never know a person's story, what, what they're struggling with, what they're wrestling with, uh, when, when they have that, when they are overweight or even obese. So creating a, a an environment where people can help each other and understand the challenges with it is really in a very important part of the group model where it's a, it's a safe place for them to come and to listen and to learn, to hand out support uh, for them with the, with the dietitian we had. So this was the, I, 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 as I was saying, we, we did it through the insurance model and then pivoted, developed this, this, uh, more of a self-pay model and launched that. We had 25 people sign up for the first go round of this in January of 2020. Of course, we got partway through of an eight week program and then the world changed with COVID. So it was uh, quite a kick in the teeth in that regard. I resuscitated a bit through a, an online, uh, group group visit, kind of Zoom uh, chat model that way, and we're able to, for the most part, complete it. But I think many people had other things on their mind, and we got most of the content that I we got to them. So it's been on the back burner right now, but I still incorporate it into my uh, handouts that I give patients, and really just talking about uh, insulin and helping people understand it. There's so much good information out there, so many web websites. DietDoctor.com is one that I refer to quite regularly that does a great job explaining it, uh, has recipes. They have all sorts of information, lectures by different physicians and nutritionists, uh, discussing all the different things you could ever even think about or imagine. Very, very useful uh, website. Seeing this in the clinic, what, one of the, some of the surprising things I found is patients with knee osteoarthritis, for example, or hip pain, who maybe have other aches and pains. And I, I, I never forget having a physician colleague who 
participated in the program and I had seen this physician for knee arthritis and then cortisone injections and she was on the path toward the knee replacement and started this program and came back for the second session and said after like two days of cutting out those refined grains and carbohydrates and added sugars, her joint aches and pains were gone. So that was one of many similar type stories. And, you know, there's anecdotes to this, but there's literature describing the inflammation and joint aches and pains and how food we eat affects it. So I would encourage people who have any of these chronic pain syndromes or aches and pains that you just can't get better, get better sleep, try to get your eight hours of sleep. Uh, inadequate sleep can, can cause insulin resistance. And more importantly, cut out any added sugar, anything sweet, and any refined carbohydrate, any wheat, uh, corn, any grains. And I know this goes militates against kind of the whole grain approach. So try it. Try it for a week. Try it for two weeks. See what happens to your belly. See what happens to your joint aches and pains. And it's, it's, you'll often be very surprised what will happen. Very good. We're going to have, uh, you know, more discussions and more topics about this. Uh, you and I are going to have a discussion either um, in about a month or two. I don't know whether it's going to be on season, uh, continuing on this season one or it's going to be on season two. But, um, you know, this is this is kind of a discussion about how it's fit into your practice. Uh, so tell me uh, what kind of what kind of uh, uh, results have you had as far as uh, the practice goes? Has it has there been any pushback from other physicians in the in the in the community, or has it been has it been received well? No, no, it's it's been quite favorable. It was initially there was uh, it was a again the, the term keto comes up and people get really nervous because they attribute it or associate it with ketoacidosis, which is very different than nutritional ketosis. I think there's a very important point for any listener or anyone who's not quite sure of the distinction between the two. Uh, nutritional ketosis is a physiologic state of low insulin, but not necessarily zero insulin. Ketoacidosis really only occurs in states of no insulin anywhere on, on board, and it's in type, people with type 1 diabetes. So if you have just even a tiny amount of of insulin that your body produces, then essentially every person with type 2 diabetes does make insulin. Their, their beta cells in their pancreas do produce insulin, but it's, it's thought to be uh, not enough. Um, so so the, the nutritional ketosis is, again, very different than ketoacidosis. It's a kind of spectrum. It's a much lower amount, maybe one to three four millimolar, whereas ketoacidosis is in 10, 12 or higher uh, is what you'll see for that. And it's very, I don't know of any report, maybe there's some reports of it in, in, uh, in, in somewhere about people who have gone into ketoacidosis, but it's physiologically, effectively impossible. It's not a concern at all. So that's number one would be not conflating the two. And um, as far as uh, outcomes, the sustainability really is the challenge. Many people can go on any kind of a diet. Any any change in any dietary approach will lead to weight loss. But as we know, it's that sustainability. And a whole the environment we're in really is has so many of these highly palatable foods, mainly they're cheaper and inexpensive, that makes it very difficult to sustain this without support and 
good understanding of how to do it and buying from family members or your, your community, you know, small community around you. But even in that setting, we've had a number of patients, dozens who have 40, 50 uh, pounds. My assistants actually did this prior assistant of mine dropped 80 pounds and everyone in the office couldn't believe it. And uh, he, he would skip lunch. He would, he would do what's called time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting is another for a longer period of time. We'd incorporate that, and I incorporated that principle of giving the body metabolic rest of not eating, not consuming any food or calories for minimum 12 hours overnight. Maybe uh, your first meal or first time you consume calories is at noon, and the last time you eat is at 8 p.m. So this this is picked up in recent year, a couple of years, there's been New England Journal articles about it. There's some question about it. There's been a study done that didn't necessarily show a significant weight loss difference. That was a shorter term study. Uh, but again, I, I think eating the nutrient dense foods and, and easier to fast. It's easier not to eat when you're eating foods that satiate and satisfy you. So yes, we have seen significant improvement in a number of patients. Uh, we have had many of, I've had, I started doing this strictly. People would send their patients to me for knee pain, for example. We talk about this diet, this program, they join up with it. And then the next time they see their physician, they drop 40, 50 pounds. And I get an email saying, I can't, you know, I can't believe the weight loss in this person. It's amazing. So I had to have some of those stories. But it's, and this, you read about this all over the place that people have, have these kind of responses, but they don't always stick. It's that sustainability that, with every every diet industry out there is trying to find that special magic way to make it sustainable. Right, and and you know it, it's funny. I I can hear your um, hesitancy to uh, go more in depth when I know I know the depth that you know this topic, uh, and and I've kind of pre warned you that this is more of a um, a um, precursor, right? Kind of a a, a primer on on what we're talking about and and diet and we only have you know a so certain amount of time and when you you could talk about this for hours and I didn't really want you to I wanted you to talk more about your practice today so realize for those out there that are listening keto diet or the low carb lifestyle uh, is uh, there's an extraordinary amount of information out there. There's an extraordinary amount of, of science, and we're going to go through it uh, through the through the uh, through the time that we do this podcast, um, or as much as we can. And Dr. Mahudi is is one that I rely on for a lot of this information. Uh, but uh, today was today was just kind of an introduction into this into this concept, and and uh, I know that you've got some things online. Um, a lot of it's awful hard. To do a practice of medicine and then also create something online, so I know that that's that's a process that you're going through. But if there's anybody who wants to look some of that up, uh, can you tell us what that is? And also, we'll we'll put it in the show notes. Sure. Yeah, appreciate it. So, I, I two years ago, I'm not a big social media person. I mentioned this in my prior, and I started a Facebook page and a and a Twitter account. I haven't really posted anything on any of those. I, I it's funny, the Lent before COVID, I, I gave up social media, Facebook, and then COVID hit in February when Lent began, and I never went, I never posted anything again. But there's quite a bit of information. I think I'm, I'm sure some of that's still out there for a year or two, posting a lot of articles and, and discussions about these topics. Um, the My website is just my name. I don't have much on there about nutrition or lifestyle. It's more of a landing page. 
think I said last year, I'm working on that. I still am working on it. But as you mentioned, I think the, the myofascial pain circuit point has become more of a, I've kind of gone back and forth between the two. But the myofascial pain, the trigger point, that kind of realm and developing content for that has been my bigger picture focus for this. So uh, I, I, if, if people are interested in this topic, this is probably the best resource out there that I've come across is dietdoctor.com. And there's, there's, there's free trial to it. I have, I have no financial conflict of interest at all with them at all. I have no relationship. But uh, they're, they just do a great job. They have a breadth of different speakers and enormous amount of content uh, that is very helpful. And, it's, and, and evidence and evidence-based and some anecdotes. Just talking about experience on things that we don't have the evidence for because we don't know, but these are expert opinion by people who are experienced and have treated care for people for decades with this approach and have had great success with it. That's great. I, I think that I think that you've mentioned that to me several times, you know, that website and 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 all that you've you've gotten uh, from it and and um, you know, having things that are already made that are out there and that people have done well with is is um you know, something to, that we as physicians and and healthcare practitioners need to promote. Uh, when someone does uh, does something well, so Dr. Mahudi, thank you very much. I really appreciate this. Um, this is, um, you know, like I said, it's a beginning as far as nutrition goes, and and I'm excited uh, to see how we develop this and uh, how many people are are helped by it, especially our uh, chronic pain patients. So thank you. Pleasure, my pleasure. Hopefully, that this was not too meandering, but there were some nuggets in there to help people rethink some of these topics and and their own lives and their patients' lives. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate your download and taking the time to listen. Please go to whatever source you normally get your podcast from and subscribe. Also, visit bodyguitar.com for show notes and to learn about our clinic. Living longer is not near as important as living better. These episodes are meant to advance the goal of living better. One of the best and hardest ways to achieve this goal is to pray for your enemies and forgive those that hurt you. Life is about relationships. Build them. Until next time, body guitar practitioners, performers, and tuners, get your body in tune. This is Dr. Sean Wheeler on Spine and Body Podcast, and I will see you on the next episode. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare studies, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their health providers for any such condition.